Welcome to the final episode of our journey into the story of the bison. You're listening to Matizzi Stories, a podcast by the Matizzi Museums, exploring Matizzi area history through its people, places, and events. This episode is unique. I gathered all of our bison experts, Dr. Chris Widga, Jason Valdez, Dr. Ken Cannon, Dr. Jeff Martin, and Dr. Larry Todd onto a Zoom meeting. And for the next two hours, we talked about all things bison. I've condensed that conversation into this episode, and there's a lot of content, so be sure to check out the show notes for any links that you might want to pursue. We began our conversation with a very simple question. What is your favorite thing about bison? Well, I I think when we were kind of talking one-on-one, one of the neat things that I really like about, about bison is they're kind of like the fruit flies of large mammals. You know, there there are lots of them. They're very adaptable. You can observe them. They're here today, but they also have this long history that uh, you know you can you can kind of interpret uh, the paleontological and the archaeological record in a way that makes sense. Um, so I think that's one of the, the neat things I like about bison is from a kind of standpoint of understanding the past and the understanding the past of this particular animal. Um, we have a lot of tools in our toolkit for really addressing some of those things. Nobody's piggybacking on top of that. <laughs> I guess I will a little bit. Uh, I, I, I've come to bison uh, in, in two different directions. The first direction two decades ago for me is I grew up on a bison ranch in Wisconsin. So I got to live with the critters for quite a bit of time. <clears throat> and then later in life, uh, went the academic route and then to study the animal in a more scientific matter. And yes, the adaptability that uh, that Chris touched upon is just absolutely incredible across the entire body. The horns, the body size, how they uh, flex their diet, it's incredible. Um, they don't fit into a pigeonhole, mainly because they're not a pigeon. <laughs> yeah. well, I'd have to agree with Chris that one of the exciting things about studying bison is, is the big sample sizes through time. Um, and when um, Amy asked me what interested me about most about bison the other day, um, I said uh, distal humeri and, and mandibular dentitions, uh, which really capture my attention on bison. But um, today, I, I don't want to be such a smart ass and say that really I'm not interested in bison. Uh, what I'm interested in is looking at the people who interacted with bison for millennia and millennia and millennia. And one of the inroads to understand those people is through that large sample size of bison that we were interacting with. And particularly in my case, the bison we find in the large kill sites can give us that inroad to trying to understand the people that were interacting with them and how the people and the bison were components of the even larger ecosystem. Yeah, and I guess to um, yeah to both uh, you know to kind of add on to what Jeff and and Chris and Larry were saying too is um, yeah I think you know they are an important part of the not only ecosystem but also you know human history and throughout North America for ten thousand plus years um, but I think you know what what Chris had um, had touched on and I think what what's of interest to me and especially looking at all these isolated skulls that we've been we've been looking at. Um, around the country is how do you draw the line? How do you, how do you define their ecosystem? Um, you know, 
and their habitat. I mean, they're everywhere. They're they're in desert basins. They're all the way up into alpine tundra regions. Um, you know, they're they're you know the fruit fly. I guess is a good good um, analogy. But yeah, they're just they're everywhere. And and the resiliency of them, like Jeff was talking about, is um, it seemed you know when we reintroduce them to their former habitats like Yellowstone, they they fill that niche incredibly quickly in a very incredibly quick manner so you know they're they're just incredible animals on a, on a whole number of scales yeah good morning guys uh so uh for me i i guess I, i'm very interested in the cultural revitalization aspect uh, of bringing them back to our tribal communities and then also uh for their importance as a as a keystone species in ecological restoration, somewhere in between all that falls the the genetics and and management and treatment as wildlife and uh, controversy over uh, the politics and livestock and production and uh, all of those uh, things that fall into play. But you know, I really their importance and role on the landscape was incredible, as uh, you know, as you just mentioned, Ken. Um, that they were everywhere, uh, that they were uh, from the from the Arctic to Mexico and nearly from coast to coast and from every elevation from sea level to 13,000 feet and, and perhaps even more that we, we haven't even figured out yet. You know, right here in my backyard in the Wind Rivers is where the highest elevation uh, buffalo jumps have been found. And uh, the... You know, the, the, just an incredible animal to, to bring back and to, to measure those types of changes uh, on the landscape with birds and insects and uh, various plants. Many of those plants that were historically uh, foods and tools and medicines associated with their wallows and, um, you know, the, the, the control of their metabolism, you know, seven times the hair per square inch as a cow, twice the surface area of their teeth. There's just a, an incredible array of... Uh, interesting things about uh, bison uh, or buffalo and then for us as native people you know a lot of our spirituality is uh, centered around uh, the buffalo itself and uh, we uh, you know our, our, our religious practices spirituality uh, practices were outlawed until 1978 and so you know, the majority of our our population on the reservation is under the age of 30 and so how can we reinvigorate reincorporate some of these cultural values that our grandmas and grandpas had uh with uh, with our cultural ways and and so bringing the buffalo back is is really essentially about healing and helping our communities uh, reconnect um metaphysically uh with with buffalo uh whether it's it's through the way we manage them or whether it's understanding more about their genetics or being able to uh, do the testing ourselves uh, for brucellosis to certify disease-free animals. Uh, reconnecting w w our people with the animal is, uh, is, is very important endeavor in, um, in, in our involvement, I suppose, as tribes with, uh, with Buffalo and, and our restoration efforts. I want to change my answer. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, after listening to all this, um, you know, it sounds rather than a fruit fly or a pigeon, uh, you know, maybe it's better to see bison as something like a bridge. Uh, they're, they're a bridge through time. So, you know, we've got bison now. 
we have bison in the past, and they're a very similar animal. We can see how they evolved through time. We can see how they changed through time. But then I know some, some of the work that uh, Jeff's done and what Jason is talking about in terms of cultural revitalization, they're also a bridge to the future. Um, so so there's kind of, they're a temporal bridge. They're a geographic bridge because you've got bison from Alaska to Mexico, from uh, historic records of bison from Florida to California. Um, so bison are everywhere, depending on when uh, you're talking about. But then you might also have you know, even a cultural bridge too. Uh, you know, these are that large geographic area transcends individual groups. So you know, when you start talking about bison revitalization, um, you know, you you can have a revitalization in a natural area in the eastern U.S. or in the in the western U.S. or in the Great Plains. So I mean, I. Thinking back, is, is they're, they're a great bridge, much better bridge that, than group fly. That's interesting you say that, Christopher, because there's actually a bison bridge project happening in uh, Illinois and Iowa on the interstate. And there's a gentleman there who is uh, wanting to take an abandoned freeway bridge and, and create a, a national park around that so the buffalo can actually get from one side of the river to the other. And uh, would be a, a landmark. Uh, people could learn about bison, but he's, he's calling it the Bison Bridge. Very cool. That's very cool. Now I'm going to jump on to that also, and I think uh, after we're done with this, we should all write a paper together, and we're going to call it Bison as a Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> so, with Bison as a Bridge, and kind of thinking about them, especially today on the landscape, you know, there's this idea that we see in Yellowstone a lot of people thinking that they're, that this is a petting zoo and they can just put them in the SUV and um, all of that, that attitude towards bison. But what conversations or education events um, or programs would about bison would you like to see outside of the fields you all are in? Not long ago, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, I heard uh, we were on another one of these online things where I was watching one. And I was really struck by Jason's comments about needing to review bison, revision bison as wildlife uh, and thinking of them, of them as part of the wildlife system rather than as they're sort of becoming today just another um, sort of conceived of domesticated stock. So I really like that struck me of, of just that, how groundbreaking that would be to start thinking about bison outside of Yellowstone and other places as another wildlife species, rather than as this, this different sort of thing. So I've been thinking about that a lot after I um, heard Jason say that a while back and just how important that is and how fundamentally different that would be if bison were in sort of the same same sort of as elk and mule deer and moose and all these other things we envision as wildlife, how different the management and the perception and their use of space would be if they were would fall into that category. So I, I really like that. And that's sort of, that is one of those bridging categories of we've got this gap there between what bison really are and the way we've become, we've begun to, or we have compartmentalized them into this disease rich, contain them, shoot them if they go out of Yellowstone species. When we let the other wildlife species move at will, they've just been, um, you know, sort of the bison anti-discrimination is one of those things that starting to view them as wildlife might help with. I'll, I'll jump on that too. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. 
Um, and it, and there is this perception, right? Having spent the last 15, 20 years in the Eastern US where bison really are domesticated stock, uh, you know, people build a big fence. Usually it's not near, the pasture isn't near big enough for a bison herd, but it grows. Uh, I can I can remember, you know, in the early days that I was in Illinois, I was invited to a conversation uh, about the revitalization of a, of a certain, it was kind of a wildlife park. And they, they had bison, they had wolves, they had elk and other things. And they had, you know, these very um, kind of high fences between all of the, the different species and that sort of thing. And then people could come to this big deck and just look out and observe animal these animals in their 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 natural habitat they had really had a hard time kind of keeping their visitation up in <laughs> recent years so they're looking for ideas to revitalize uh that particular park and and they probably didn't like my suggestion which was take down the fences um you know you have a herd of bison and you have a pack of wolves Yes, it's that that is natural. They're going to be able to work, you know, they're going to be able to interact with each other. And that's sort of thing. The bison will hold their own before long. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we kind of treat these things as it as a museum guy. We treat them as different museum exhibits. You know, we package them individually and we manage them that way. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing. In that particular instance, that may have not been the best thing to say or the best idea. But uh, but I, I agree. I think kind of a change in philosophy about how we manage these things and uh, and how they not only how do we manage bison herds, but how do we manage their how they interact with the landscape, you know, the stocking rates, how they interact with other other large ungulates and, and large animals. And that's sort of thing I think is really important. I, th- I think you're, you're exactly right. The buffalo uh We've been calling it a paradigm shift, really, and shifting from how we see and manage buffalo as livestock. And oftentimes people don't realize that there's only less than 25,000 conservation buffalo, and these are managed in 12 conservation populations through the Department of Interior. Uh, There's a couple publicly managed herds in Utah at the Henry Mountains and Book Cliffs. And so there's... there's, uh, Federal and tribal uh, conservation herds, the, the buffalo here at Wind River are also co- considered conservation buffalo. There's close to a million buffalo in the United States that are under commercial meat production. And 95% of those animals have cattle gene intergression. And so it's still a vital step in in preserving the bison genome because of the, the fact that there's only, there's less than 25,000. And of those 25,000, none of the populations meet the thousand animal threshold needed to maintain genetic heterogeneity. And so we need more of these conservation buffalo established in satellite areas at that population threshold so that we can really still preserve the bison genome and not have it be manipulated uh, through the the ranching or or the treatment of buffalo as livestock. Because when we do that, we're, we're genetically manipulating them by uh, a, an unnatural male to female sex ratio we're, we're selecting for things like size or ease of handling or docility effectively domesticating the animal and and so these less than 25,000 animals very important for conservation but really what we need also is to encourage our land management agencies to prioritize ecological integrity 
over um, livestock grazing, agriculture, and oil and gas development. And if we can help restore the ecological integrity of our public lands in the West, then we have to have that conversation of putting keystone species back. And that's where we get the ecological integrity. And that's a, a stance that we may be able to really um, put pressure on with a new administration, a Native American Secretary of Interior who recognizes the uh, mismanagement uh, of trust lands, in particular with reservations, but also public lands and access to uh, traditional territories by Indigenous people. And so um, we have legislation like the Indian Buffalo Management Act uh, that would allocate additional federal dollars with the underlying language of the Bolt decision, uh, uh, upholding federal trust responsibility to tribes by treaty because of the Buffalo relationship in synonymity with the salmon to the Northwest tribes. Uh, we have the Restoring America's Wildlife Act, which would allocate additional funding for law enforcement to tribes to uh, manage wildlife better. And, and, and you know, the, their BIA does not provide adequate funding for law enforcement agencies on the reservation. For instance, at Wind River, we have three game wardens uh, and our reservation is the same size as Yellowstone, uh, you know, make that comparison. So there's uh, uh, also the, the Bernhardt Initiative, Department of Interior Bison Initiative, which has five priorities of bison managed as wildlife, the managing for the genetic integrity, partnering with uh, other organizations and tribes, and uh, upholding uh, large numbers on large landscapes. So with these initiatives and a new administration, there's gonna be, uh, I anticipate, many more opportunities to see this take place, this paradigm shift to help people understand that this animal has its place as wildlife. And in order to do that, we have to, to make some changes so that it can exist that way. Yeah, just kind of um, relating, you know, some of the experiences I had with uh, with the way bison are are presented, and and also I'd like to, you know, maybe, you know, talk about what Jason was talking about was, you know, the genetics of bison, and you know, a couple of things. One, you know, going back to the, our perception of bison and how we present them to the public, and especially in Yellowstone, I think Yellowstone's probably the biggest venue for you know, for bison to be seen and to be interpreted um, and understood better. But, you know, I was, I was in meetings and, and wrote um, a chapter for the reintroduction of the wolves in Yellowstone. And one of the big issues was, well, if, you know, what if we do bring back wolves and, and a wolf comes along and, and takes out a, a bison calf in the middle of everybody? You know, how, you know, how are we going to deal with that? It's like, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's part of why we're reintroducing the wolf and, you know, to make this system whole again. And, you know, so just that whole idea of the interaction of these of these species on a landscape, but also seeing how, how bison are culled in Yellowstone. I, I keep wondering, not necessarily trying to move the, the conversation in this direction about genetics, but, you know, what is what is the impact of that on, on bison behavior and then genetically? Because, you know, obviously the bison that are showing up at those boundaries are probably the most aggressive, the most adventurous, and, you know, the ones that are looking to fill their niche. And, you know, and if you start taking those animals out, you know, the first ones that show up at the gate get get culled, you know, what does that do to behavior and, you know, potentially the genetics of those animals? And then, again, what we're, you know, with the large amount of, of bison that are, that are 
you know, being domesticated towards cattle. What is, you know, what is what is that doing to the species in a in a long term? You know, I think the, those those things, issues that that Jason brought up are just are really profound in my in my opinion. And and I don't think it's you know to me you know we are a collective group here. And, you know, we're, we in some ways are you know are preaching to the choir in a lot of ways. But I think you know to get out that that message that that there's something much more important than just just what the bison represent. Um, and you know how we interpret the bison. I think there's, you know, it's it's a paradigm shift and a worldview about you know the importance of of these animals on the landscape. And you know, it's not only a paradigm shift for everyone else that we're trying to educate. It's also a paradigm shift for our own people because you know the name for the Eastern Shoshone. We called ourselves the Guichandika, the the buffalo eaters. We distinguish ourselves by the foods we ate. But the buffalo has been absent for 130 years. And most of our people have been accustomed to eating beef. And, you know, we became reliant on the federal government to provide rations back in the day, uh, oftentimes flour and sugar. If you've ever had fry bread, that's a, that's a survival food. That's not a traditional food. And so we're, we are also stuck in this paradigm of, of eating unhealthy. I think that's why the the food system initiatives are very important in our tribal community so that we can begin to eat healthy again to decolonize that uh, way that was brought upon us and instead adopt back some of those values that we had in, in terms of our everyday lives. That's food gathering, that's fishing, that's hunting, that's exercise. Those are traditional values, and, and we have to reincorporate those things, starting with, the, again, our young people. Two things, if I can keep my train of thought. Going back to what Ken was saying, um, I think that's real important. As we start out talking about bison are everywhere, and they can eat all sorts of things, and, and in restricting their behaviors through what we're doing there at Yellowstone, we're diminishing that behavioral plasticity, potentially genetically. We're changing the adaptive potential of bison as part of, you know, the behaviors are part of why they could do all that stuff. They can, they can shift what they can do. They can alter their diet. They can, they can shift to a degree when they have their, their birth season a little bit. All those things that they can do because of their plasticity. And we're again trying to force them into this little Yellowstone park-shaped box and diminish that. And then um, what I was thinking in terms of Jason talking about the foodways, uh, maybe we need to go back to Chris's def- definition and shift it from fruit flies to bridge to nexus because they're connecting ecosystem health with human dietary health. And there's all sorts of things that run, you know, it's not just the bridge going from here to there. There's lots of things that go into the bison nexus and then back out. And there's, they're, they're helping to connect lots of things. So bridges, yeah, connect point A to B, but the bison add C, D, F, G, H, I, Z, Etc. All the sort of connections in there. So they're they're much more connected than a than a single single lane bridge. Thanks, Lawrence, and you and you you triggered what I was going to go to off of Ken's comment there, and that was uh, I think the best way that we've been able to come up to mitigate the loss of animals in in bison has been through the quarantine program. I think that's the best way to maximize the number of live buffalo that we get out of Yellowstone and utilize those animals in different areas in our satellite populations so that we're utilizing those genetics to the best of our abilities. Improving the genetic health of our populations within the tribes and within those 
conservation populations managed by the Department of Interior. The way that the quarantine came into existence was it was really proposed by the Intertribal Buffalo Council and the National Wildlife Federation as, as a means to prevent their slaughter as they're just trying to leave to get uh, uh, access to winter range. Fort Peck tribes have kind of led the way in that effort to to maximize the number. They've received over 200 Yellowstone buffalo. So far, that's been the best way to get animals out of there with what we've got. You know, Yellowstone's all we've got. And the, the management hasn't caught up to the science. You know, elk can move freely, yet they still use brucellosis as the argument. And, you know, even this year, seven to 900 buffalo being called. It's ridiculous. One of the ways we've been trying to to mitigate that is is to establish uh, an additional quarantine facility because Fort Peck is outside of the DSA, the designated surveillance area for brucellosis. Wind River is kind of in a unique position to potentially establish a quarantine facility. And as of last week, I was able to secure a 640-acre ranch where I'll be building a, a quarantine facility. We have about nine months to plan it. Uh, it'll be state-of-the-art we will focus uh, on, you know, buffalo handling and management, training and education opportunities, uh, a, a youth learning program. So we have big plans for trying to maximize the number of animals that come out of Yellowstone, not only to supplement our own population once we're able to manage them as wildlife on hundreds of thousands of acres here, but also to ensure that we can get those Yellowstone buffalo to other tribes. That could be through the 70 tribe membership through the Intertribal Buffalo Council, or it could be, you know, working with other entities like the the Crane Trust in Nebraska that has a, a genetically pure population. There's several populations in Colorado of genetically pure satellite populations, not including the Department of Interior ones. So we want to have a network uh, where we can share those genetics and improve the health of all of our satellite populations and and those that's that's kind of our best bet for getting uh, you know preventing as much death of, of buffalo there as possible you know seven to nine hundred animals that's a lot this year uh, i don't think that even with a 640 acre ranch we could accept seven to eight seven to nine hundred animals but it'll be very likely that we'll be able to accept two or three hundred and, and prevent uh, you know the death of that number in the future but you know, we, you know, like Lawrence said, you know, Yellowstone's a, an arbitrary box that we've put these uh, boundaries around and Buffalo are only allowed there. That doesn't work when we're, when we're trying to talk about the health of our ecosystem here as a whole and, and how these organisms interact with one another. And uh, I'm, I'm teaching an environmental science course at Central Wyoming College and um, able to uh, curve the curriculum entirely around buffalo. But environmental science, you, you know, you, we're bringing all the components uh, of in a multidisciplinary approach to understand the best approach. And really, that's ecological restoration of, of keystone species. We know by numbers that birds are diminishing in the United States. Biodiversity of how many species are declining worldwide. One small step we can do in our Greater Yellowstone ecosystem is, is to restore some ecological integrity by putting buffalo back. Yeah, get them into the forest and, as well as the park, yeah. yeah. One of the things that, again, um, just 
hit me with your comment is just how important that bison model is of the idea that um, quarantining small groups is a great way to promote community health. Uh, that's sort of a message that we should be getting big time as, as a world population right now. And like everything else, bison are sort of could be a model of, of see this works. Um, you can take care of, of rather than rapid spread if you deal with it rationally and with a management plan and this sort of stuff. So bison can lead the way or at least help us envision pandemic responses, uh, not directly, but just as that model of thought. I liked it. Yeah, and it's food security and food sovereignty for tribes. Uh, and uh, and that that's a, a very important part of that. But what can happen on tribal lands can definitely trickle over into what we can do on public lands. And, you know, it might be too soon for the, the public land bison restoration talk, but with successful wildlife restoration on tribal lands and partnering with uh, organizations like National Wildlife Federation or Conservation Lands Foundation, we can, you know, there are several conservation organizations are very like-minded with, with tribes. And it's we're kind of in a new era of partnership and collaboration where sovereignty is being recognized and some level. Um, the self-determination is is recognized as an, as a as a way to uh, endeavor together in in conservation of species. Uh, so I, I see a lot of potential in the next few years for that to happen. Um, it's a big conversation, and it's cool to to be able to to have it with with a variety of folks today. It, you know, it wasn't like that just five years ago. Yeah, I'd like to also reiterate that it, 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 things have changed in the last five years drastically. Um, and I can speak to the bison industry and the private side of this uh, multi-sector bison model is that there is a concerted uh, effort and a huge emphasis right now to better manage genetic material and information for these herds. Purely going by a presence absence of is there cattle introgression on herds in the private sector? Yeah, it is a huge number. It's, it's close to 90%. Um, however, of the animals, fewer than 10% of those animals have that genetic introgression from cattle. Um, and so they are doing a good job um, from what they inherited from a legacy of 100 years ago that they were crossed. They're not crossed today. That is against the code of ethics and frankly illegal. Um, under the purview of wildlife law. Um, and so there's, there's this plurality, I think, for the entire bison management system, including the public sector, tribal sector, NGOs, conservation organizations, and the private, um, that if they were to better communicate <laughs> that they are wanting the same values, they want to move towards this better wildlife type management system, that they can all unify in that mission and, and goal um, I, it's part of my role to try and, and do that with the Center of Excellence for Bison Studies at South Dakota State uh, University. And in fact, I am, I am actively writing a paper now about this exact topic um, of how to better push the conversation into this new paradigm, into this better communication and collaboration among these uh, very unique actors. The thing that's cool about bison is that plurality. No other animal has this privilege of being a wildlife species native to North America and a domestic species. What comes with that domestic type of thinking as the livestock agriculture is that there are additional resources for pools of money to advance research. Um, and, and we're actively pursuing these 
And it's specifically that I'm trying to uh, bring into the conversation is if you look at where most of the conservation herds are located, they're at the perimeter, the margins of where historic bison range was. They're not in the core, the Great Plains. The problem with the Great Plains is that they are over 90% privately owned and also quite a large chunk and tribally owned as well. And so emphasizing in the Great Plains, the core of the bison historic range is to incentivize these tribal and, and private ownership and stewardship of bison, reintegrating the cultural connections, reintegrating food sovereignty for local communities, rural communities. It's not easy. It's, it's a brand new way of thinking, I think, and how we get there is not going to be fun, <laughs> um, but, but I think the outcome is a, is a huge reward. And I think that there's a huge um, desire for it uh, among the multiple sectors out there. You know, but, um, I'm real curious, Jeff, because I'm, I'm not a geneticist, and, but really interested in the bison genome and, you know, with the original interagency working group that the National Park Service had on bison a few years ago and, and talking to people like Jim Durr down at Texas A&M, who's kind of led a lot of the, the genetic studies and his students and stuff. And his conversation to me, because I kept wanting him to get interested in doing the genome on, on prehistoric bison and pre-contact bison. And he really didn't see a lot of value in that. And I don't know if his, you know, his mind has shifted, but he always thought that, you know, bison have gone through these, um, these periods of, you know, where populations have have been diminished and they've expanded over the course of the Holocene, which, you know, is, I'm not sure that if that's necessarily accurate, but but he thought that, you know, over the course of the 10,000, 15,000 years that, that, you know, we assigned the um, genus bison um, back in time, he thinks that all those deleterious genes have been completely weeded out of, of bison populations. And there's really nothing to learn from those those prehistoric populations as far as, you know, the genetics of them. And I think if that was your idea, you'd want to evaluate it. by. Looking yeah, at yeah, yeah, exactly. And I can never, yeah, I, and I can never convince them to think that, that that was of interest. And there are people that have, you know, been trying to, to do, I know Craig Lee's taken some of the bison that he's been getting out of the, the ice patches and trying to do the genetics on them, but it's all mitochondrial DNA. So it's, you know, we're not seeing the entire genome. And it just, it just seems to me that we're, we're really missing an opportunity to really study that whole genome and see, to see how, um, you know, these bison genetics have changed over the course of 10,000 years and, and put that into the, you know, what you're talking about with, with trying to reestablish and, and Jason was talking about and, and, and better, better manage the genome of bison. I, I, I don't know if I'm, you know, just being an idiot and not understanding genetics very well, or if, like, yeah, it's just kind of a frustrating thing to me that. Uh, I'm also not a geneticist, but I do have the exact same uh, arguments that you have. I share them with you, and I've shared them with Dr. Durr as well. Um, and he, yeah, he doesn't have the interest in looking at that uh, prehistoric, protohistoric perspective. Though there are efforts now underway to try and get those ancient genomes sequenced. Um, efforts by Beth Shapiro, um, efforts by um, there's a Canadian group that's just submitted a Genome Canada proposal to look at this very question. And it's, I think, a, a noble act. It's going to be very difficult to get that full genome preserved, one, two, then be able to recover it, and then three, be able to sequence all of it. And the four, know what the sequence means. <laughs> um, and, and does it match with what we see today? We have currently, it's either three or four modern 
bison genomes fully sequenced. Um, one funded by the USDA, one funded by the NSF, and another one somewhere else, I forget where else it was, somewhere in Europe, but it's the North American bison that they've sequenced. And there is diversity in the genome, that they're not exactly the same as you expect. And so the more we learn about the modern, more questions we have about how they get those particular sequencing. Um, and so, yeah, I do hope that we can get more information from right before the bottleneck of, of 1870, get that protohistoric information going back. I'd, I'd like to see 500 years for that time period. And then I'd like to see another targeted aim right at the collapse of the uh, North American glaciers. When those were receding, that had population effects on, as we know, the mammoths that went extinct and all of their uh, kin of the, of the Ice Age. But bison went through a population decline at the same time. There's a huge uh, selection at that time for bison as well. They were able to recover their populations because we see them today. But what did we lose then too? So they've gone through at least two bottlenecks. And, and what has remained is what we see today, but what did we lose? And is it useful moving forward into a hotter, drier climate? Can we utilize, um, boy, this is really getting dangerous now. Can we utilize uh, <laughs> genetic management in a way to recover some of those lost traits? Well, what I'd like to kind of throw out here is you're talking about stuff that when I was working with bison, in my graduate career was science fiction. Um, the, the genome, the DNA, the stuff like that. Uh, you know, we'd measure a few bones, we'd make a few descriptions and talk about bison. And so this, this genetic work is just opening up. So here's a new, maybe rather than a bridge or a nexus or fruit flies, bison or a door in that they'll open up all sorts of other avenues of research. And so maybe to hit Chris and Ken a little bit to talk about sort of how that door from the biogeochemistry and the isotopes and the trace elements and the ecosystem position of bison uh, can really start understanding not just how bison operate on the landscape, but how the ecosystems were operating through time. Um, what do you think about just sort of that that multiplicity of data sets that we can get out of these large bison samples that can amplify and build and, and give us, again, this sort of things that when I was studying bison were science fiction-like to move us into a future of ecosystem understanding that was just unimaginable 10 to 15 to 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm kind of listening to this. And actually, the discussion about the kind of genetic diversity in bison as a whole and and the potential of this very large population expanding and contracting over a large geographic range we've, we've talked about fruit flies pigeons bridges nexus pluralities i i think jeff has plurality and then doors okay i'm going to bring it back at the risk of kind of refocusing here i'm going to compare bison to free tail bats um so <laughs> That's batty. Oh, I know. It's, 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 <laughs> um, you know, I'm kind of thinking about for free-tailed bats, what you have is this meta population that every winter goes back to Mexico, or a large part of that population goes back to Mexico and they they interbreed and that sort of thing. And you may have a bat that comes from Florida that the next year it, it winters in Mexico and the next year it goes to California. The year after that it'll go to Texas. And so they're kind of this classic mammal case of a really interesting metapopulation, uh, looking at the genetic history of them, 
they are hugely dynamic as a population. And so, you know, they respond to the end of the Pleistocene very quickly, very rapidly, because they're able to mix those genes uh, kind of quickly uh, every year. And I wonder if, you know, we're not talking about the same time scales necessarily, but I wonder if that's something that we're seeing with bison too. You know, we're, eight, we're rather than having these isolated kind of breeding groups, isolated bison populations in different places of the country, eventually everything gets mixed back up and they go back out and they do something else, which is thinking about a paradigm shift. I, I know, Larry, I'm the same way. You know, I started out thinking about these things as a bone. <laughs> and then it became, okay, how can I interpret these dozen bones? And then it's, how can I interpret these hundred bones? And then it's, how can I interpret these 10,000 bones? But the, the, the tools that we have available at our fingertips these days are incredible. And a lot of times it's not only that we're borrowing techniques and methods from other disciplines, but the questions that we're presenting ourselves are driving those methods. I, I remember when we were working on mammoth DNA and trying to understand, you know, mammoth evolution over the last 100,000 years, the, the geneticist that was working on the pro project actually developed a new method for getting better recovery of DNA out of fossil bones as part of that project. Uh, and so now you'll see that that particular bait method used all over, no matter what taxa you're dealing with. Um, and I think bison kind of have the potential to do this. I, I remember having a conversation with a geneticist probably only about five, six, seven years ago uh, with the same idea. Let, what would happen if we went out and, uh, you know, sampled a whole bunch of fossil bison or archaeological bison or things that are old and try and piece together this population history. And the response was too hot, too young, not enough, uh, not, not enough uh, variability in the genome uh, over that time scale. And part of that is just we weren't as good at getting DNA out of bones at that point. And I know that's changed. That's changed the ball game in the last couple of years. We can ask questions now that uh, we haven't been able to ask before, or we've asked them uh, using other tools like measuring horn cores or measuring uh, bison skulls and trying to make sense of that kind of noisy morphological data. But the DNA provides this other angle, this independent line of evidence that's independent of the diet of that animal or the size of that animal or whether it's male or female or, or something like that. So it gives us another angle to really look at these things. Um, as a, as a paleoecologist, that that's fascinating to me. So, you know, thinking about different groups of bison or different populations of bison that are potentially adapting to new areas uh, and, and new ecosystems um, is really fun to think about. Um, you know, one of the, the, the things is I'm listening to you guys talk about Yellowstone bison and, and the, just the, the uniqueness of that ecosystem. Um, I, I've been thinking about how what happens when you introduce bison to ecosystems that they've been absent from for 100 or 150 years. And so in parts of the tall grass prairies where they've reintroduced bison in, in the last 10 years, we're finding that they impact some plants that we were trying to protect. Uh, you know, they impact some of these plants in kind of deleterious ways. Uh, and so you maybe maybe we don't just dump a whole bunch of bison 
on a tall grass prairie, you know, and, and keep it at a herd size that you would have out in Western Kansas. Maybe there is a, a historical trajectory in some of these different regions that we really need to take into account. You know, it's smaller herds. Maybe, um, you know, maybe they're moving faster or they're moving slower. And so there are some of these, these tools that we now have at our fingertips to look at prehistoric bison that allow us to kind of piece together these behavioral patterns as well. Uh, whether it's diet, uh, whether it's mobility, whether it's, um, you know, who, which, which bison groups are breeding with which bison groups and how large is the size of that, that uh, gene pool. Thanks, Christopher. That's interesting you said that. Um, you know, Ted Turner, he's got, you know, roughly 50,000 bison, mostly for his restaurants, but a couple of his populations are of the genetic reputable kind. The uh, interesting thing, I talked to one of his herd managers and uh, he thought it was very interesting f how the different populations of his buffalo grew differently. So his, his buffalo in South Dakota grew very fast and grew to very large size and, and his buffalo in uh, Vermejo in New Mexico uh, grew relatively slowly over time eventually reached a similar size, but um, just the, the ecological differences of those two areas and the uh, um, the rate of growth and the, the, the grass diversity. Interesting question, so uh, for sure. the um, I'm part of a study from Boise and, and Nebraska looking at socioeconomic impacts of bison grazing. So we don't know if we got funded yet, but the the goal of that is to really look at uh, some different populations of, of, of bison and um, and trying to make some make some predictions about what their what their different behaviors are it'll only be able to we'll only be be able to compare uh, you know four or six populations but some of these questions are you know we're starting to get to uh, there's still many, many more, you know, like Lauren says, I think it's uh, kind of like opening a book of, of things you want to look at because there's just an array of uh, uh, things to look at from a multidisciplinary approach. So the dietary part is really interesting to me too. Um, and, and the microbiome of a buffalo gut in that a lot of noxious weeds don't grow in buffalo manure. You know, what is the microbiome of the gut of a buffalo doing that that assists in that uh, the seed dispersal the, the the wallowing just just trying to think of of topics i can bring up with uh, students too you know to kind of engage them young people getting involved in a lot of this research is is pretty cool and interesting to uh, to get spark some interest in some young people about um, some of these buffalo questions they can ask and, and research themselves too I think the uh, thinking of a bison as a book and what we're trying to learn by reading that book has only been maybe an eighth written. The rest of it needs to be written. <laughs> um, there's a lot of blank pages. Well, a lot of it's written in the bison samples we have. We just haven't translated it yet. That's right. That's in their language. We need to translate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and part of that is also this kind of philosophical shift. Uh, you know, we were talking about seeing bison as a domesticated animal. And when you do that, you kind of close the door. You, you, you frame it and you say, okay, I know this animal. And by reframing it within or not framing it at all uh, or, or placing it within an ecosystem rather than a frame, 
you know, you open yourself up to all these other questions. And especially because bison is one of these keystone herbivores that depending on whether they're there, not there, what they're doing, what their numbers are, um, they're going to have kind of these cascading effects to whether it's uh, their impacts on rare plants, their impacts on other ungulates, their impacts on predators. So, I mean, there are so many threads to this story that, uh, yeah, a, a book, you know, to take our metaphor even further, you know, um, a, a book being two-dimensional, we're really kind of dealing with something that is maybe a web. <laughs> so the story is intertwined with the oral history of, of tribes, too. And so in our storytelling, you know, we, you know, the, the instance, for instance, the great race, a Lakota story about the birds and the four-leggeds who competed to uh, run the circle and the magpie ended up winning the race for the two-leggeds. And that, that race meant that we now eat the buffalo. And some of those stories are really interesting in, in tying in some of those other uh, animals, uh, the magpie, you know, the, the Frugianus hawk, the burrowing owl. Um, and and also so that the keystone nature of buffalo is told in the in the oral history of of many tribes so that that cultural component is also very interesting to overlap with the, the science in a way legitimize it a major emphasis of, of i'm going to take a little tangential route and then bring us back um the, the center of excellence is brand new uh, it was launched in september i was brought on in october um, it is a collaboration between the South Dakota State University, the uh, National Bison Association, and the National Buffalo Foundation. It is a research arm, a industry interest arm, and a funding arm to try and come together. And a major focus for SDSU specifically is to include more perspective and more integration with, with tribal universities like Sintagleshka and Mission South Dakota. And, and we've been because it's South Dakota State, we have a particular focus to be in the state of South Dakota, but I don't think that limits us in our partnerships. And I, I think that eventually we will build to a better place to integrate traditional Western science with traditional knowledge. And I think that's going to be a huge new area of information and experience and better, a better way to come across knowledge, <clears throat> better way to disseminate this knowledge um, across, again, plurality of cultures and people that live in the Western U.S., but hopefully also get people in, in the Eastern seaboard who've never seen a bison to enjoy bison. It is their national mammal just as much as it is ours. I live in the shadow of Buffalo Mountain in Eastern Tennessee, but I can't find any historic records of bison from around here. I really want them to be here. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they do not exist in the archaeological record locally. So so we need some conservation conservation herds out here. In your area, there's there's elk conservation uh, herd that's been introduced. Um, Oak Ridge, I believe, is where they were introduced first. And then a second herd was introduced in, was it Blue Ridge on, in North Carolina? And so there's elk in the area. <laughs> What's to stop bison? Not much. You know, I we have a good... Uh, Holocene record of bison that really kind of comes up to the edges of the Valley Ridge area and up to the edges of the Southern Appalachians. 
Um, we even have some bison on the other side of mountains in Virginia and North Carolina, but there, there's this big hole. <laughs> so ho- hopefully someday we'll find some. We're looking. We should, looking. We should just drop them into uh, Gray Fossil site. Oh, but there, <laughs> you've seen that tooth we have. <laughs> I have. Um, I think they would be, do wonders for your for your woody encroachment and, and grass encroachment onto the site too. They'd keep that at bay. Right. Well, I want to, um, you know, Larry and and Chris were talking a little bit about, um, you know, some of the studies that we've been doing and the, the you know, the value of, of isotopic work that's that's being done on bison and, and other animals and stuff. And I've got a really small data set right now. And I just I sent Doug Walker some more um, samples for, for strontium. And, and what's really curious that I'm seeing, and, you know, again, I, I need to, you know, look at the data a lot more and, and get a bigger data set. But I've got three populations of bison, one at the Horner site, one from Jackson Hole, and one from the Yellowstone Plateau. And the strontium data shows that these animals are not migrating at, out of those those landscapes. All the Yellowstone stuff looks like volcanic plateau strontium signatures. The Horner site is all sedimentary rocks from, from the basin out there. And Jackson Hole is all sedimentary rocks as well, too. So Doug got some samples from uh, from Idaho, from southeastern Idaho, um, still within the, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So I'm curious to see what those things are. So what, so, you know, this idea that these bison are having these big, massive migrations, even even on a local scale of moving up and down the mountains, you know, if, if my data sets holds true, you know, what does that tell us about, about their ranges, about how they interacted, um, and then also, you know, in, into the future? How, we, how do we manage those into the future? Again, it's, you know, everything's just kind of speculative and, you know, data sets are, it's a pretty small data set, but it's, it's really curious to me at this point. Well, at Wind River, we answer that by putting a buffalo back and watching what happens. Yeah. You know, I think at some point we'll manage buffalo here on 800,000 acres and there's no place where that occurs. And uh, it might be, you know, it might be five years down the road, but the, the goal, if, if I have any way or say about it, will, will be that we manage buffalo as, as such and we'll have incredible opportunities to see what happens but we got to think big i've been called idealistic for thinking like that but you know so what let's make it happen yeah that's going to start being my answer jason uh when people ask me did did buffalo migrate i'm gonna be like just put them back and we'll see uh well well, being a being a matriarchal animal that's why we always start with young animals when we do restoration because of the 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 older cows are the ones who lead them but if they don't know or have a, an older cow to lead them anywhere they don't know where to migrate to until they learn their environment and so you start with young animals you you watch what happens they grow and you watch the hierarchy of the of the population and and see what happens yeah and you know ken first of all let me send you data you know both of us have been thinking about this for a long time and there's a lot of teeth that I have sampled that, you know, they come from Kentucky or they're, they're come from different parts of the chronology in the Great Plains and just trying to wrap our, our brains around, did bison move in, you know, kind of pre-bottleneck bison? Did they move? How far did they move? Did they move seasonally? Did they move annually? Something like that. And, you know, I, I probably have you know, a dozen, two dozen samples from all time periods and all places. And they're saying exactly what your samples are saying is that bison 
over the course of a single year, pre-bottleneck bison were not moving particularly far. They may have been moving like between, you know, river lowlands to high, neighboring highlands. They may have been moving up and down a mountain, but they're not engaging in these kind of huge migrations that you have historic documents uh, kind of describing. And initially, I was really suspect of that method, simply because we're trained to use the historic record and believe the historic mm -hmm. record. And in this case, I don't know that it, it's really telling you much beyond that year that those observations were made. Yeah. Um, and even by you know, the mid-1800s, you're talking about a lot of ecological disruption that would kind of not be helping these these animals kind of stay in one place. And this might be another really good avenue to to integrate, you know, some of these oral histories and that sort of thing that would would kind of help uh, help us interpret some of this isotopic data. Um, but yeah, it it, it struck me um, that over this over the course of a single year, very little movement over the course of three or four or five years, you know, more significant movement. Uh, in most of these sites that I was looking at, the people were moving further than the bison were over the course of a single year. So you'd look at the raw material and their tools, and the, that would come from 200 kilometers away. But the bison couldn't have been moving more than 70 or 100 kilometers in a year. So it, it was it was definitely a paradigm shift. I want to yeah, just jump in real quick with one of my soapboxes that I've been getting on recently um, from what Jason was saying about the matriarchal nature, nature of bison and you move them into a new area. Uh, they need to learn that area before they start migrating. I've been really more than I should have thinking about these uh, developments and transmissions of animal cultures, of that acquisition of information of an area, that storage of information about an area, and that transmission of that information to other generations. So that bison learning how to move or migrate through a new area, they have that transmission of information that is like we're transmitting information now that a lot of my cultural anthropologists hate it when I start talking about non-human culture because we have that fence around it. We have it. No, no other other animals do. Nana, 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 that kindergarten approach to looking at the world. But I get real excited about thinking about how other animal species acquire and process and store and transmit information and that how they learn to migrate or utilize areas or move across areas is just another cultural study as far as I'm concerned. And it's the cultural study that allows us to develop real cultural theory because it looks at cultures across species rather than just having that sample size of the way one species uses culture. Human, we start looking at how multiple species use culture. And that to me is, is real exciting. And I've sort of got into that route through the bison and the other game animals and trying to worry about how um, they interact with the human knowledge to hunt them and that sort of stuff. So that's that's my tangential sort of kick right there. I have a question for Ken and, and Chris, um, kind of inspired by Jason's talking about bison being a matriarchal society. Have you been able to determine in your samples whether that sample is from a male or female? And if there's difference in the variance of those strontium and, and then perceived geographic ranges different by sex? Yeah, in the samples that I've got, um, because they, a lot of these have been isolated teeth um, that you know, separating them out. Um, it's impossible. <laughs> it's not good. But the ones that I have are males, and you know, and they they seem to be not migrating because I because in my dissertation I tried I, I looked at you know a few more just looking at carbon and uh, 
and nitrogen at that point and you know just did some statistics and there wasn't really any difference between what I could determine were females and males and I was I was kind of surprised at that because you know the bulls are just everywhere they're just wandering around all over the place where the you know the cows seem to be you know a little bit more constrained because of the of the herd structures and stuff but yeah I mean that's yeah that's that's a big part of of the question that I have is you know is there something going on with with the gender of the of the, the samples and yeah you know this is something you know just you know if we can ever get together again and drink some beers and talk about this stuff and because i you know my knowledge of of this is is kind of evolving and but kind of as a first look at this this data it's like you know this is kind of interesting but i'm sure once get get bigger samples and understand a little bit better there there's probably a lot more nuance to it but but they you know like you were talking about chris there uh i don't know if all yours are but you know all these are are down to samples so you know they're representing a little bit longer time period than just a a year in the life of a bison and so i don't know it's it's curious to me yeah males and females this this sexual dimorphism is really important to bison social structure. It's really obvious if you're looking at, uh, you know, the the long bones or even skulls or something like that. But it just isn't it isn't apparent in teeth. And for most of our approaches, since they are somewhat destructive, you know, we start out with the things that are not as important to keep intact. You know, that if you put a small hole in it, it's not going to destroy its exhibit potential or something like that. And so when we start out with teeth, that that's one of those pieces of information that kind of falls by the wayside. I, I remember when I first started sampling all these teeth, I remembered a paper by Larry that he was actually able to separate male versus female teeth at the Horner site. I I tried to do that and I couldn't. So, <laughs> but but yeah, that's an incredibly important part of that equation. We know. I wonder, you know, we have new tools. The the actually, in order to tease apart whether it's a male female animal genetically. Uh, you don't need near as good a preservation at the molecular level that you do to really get at some sort of these genome studies. So uh, I think as some of these techniques become more available and easier to do, um, you know, we'll have kind of independent lines of evidence to really track some of these things down. And also um, kind of to add in, um, so from the Horner site samples, there's three cohorts represented there, you know, so that's, I, I think is even more compelling. It's not just one animal. There's there's three cohorts that, that don't seem to be going very far. And, you know, and they're all probably still part of the, you know, the nursery herd at that point, but um, lots of stuff to learn, you know, and, and like you were saying, Chris, and we, we do have an incredible toolbox right now. I think the frustrating thing that we all feel is, is the money to do all those things. That's, that's always kind of the, the big rub is trying to find support and to, to do all these things because our ideas are endless, I think. It's just, you know. Trying one to- of the things that um, was striking me from this discussion is one of the ways to get more of that money is sort of thinking about this multiplicity of answers for like the things that we've been talking about here all over the board. Uh, there's, it's not just sampling bison teeth isn't just sampling bison teeth. It's, it's talking about all these other things. So whether it's, it's um, foodways or oral histories or genetics, or we have uses for those data that throw that net over a very wide bunch of, of disciplines and questions and interests. So that, you know, if the need for money, one of the ways to get that money is to demonstrate just the broad utility, the broader impacts of those seemingly minutia reductionist sorts of data like the, 
chemistry of bison teeth isn't just a tiny little question, tiny little bit of information. It has huge implications over large landscapes and large time frames. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that we're seeing right now is, uh, you know, historically, we've lived in our individual disciplines and we haven't really talked outside of silos. There are little islands of information. And, uh, and increasingly, we're seeing situations like we have here, where we have representatives across many different disciplines, you know, public sector, private sector, tribal, um, and all at the table at the same time, often asking similar questions. So you're able to prioritize and see kind of where we have shared goal. Uh, and, and that's really exciting. I mean, I, I remember writing my dissertation 15 years ago, and the last chapter was all about, you know, what does this mean? What does all this archaeological you know, paleoecology of bison. What does it mean for bison today or bison in the future? And my committee told me to ax it. <laughs> so it was no longer, it's no longer part of my dissertation because we just weren't ready. We didn't have those conversations or we didn't have those, those connections made. And so I, that's one of the things that in the last two or three years that has been really encouraging to me is to see this bridge building, nexus building pluralities uh, kind of coming together and and prioritizing what are the big questions and what are not only the big questions to understanding bison in the past or understanding management problems or something like that, but you know what are the big questions that we can all agree on and kind of move in the same direction on. And I think that that that's really important. And, and that actually segues really nicely into like some of the stuff that Jeff's doing uh, about looking at future climate change and its impact on things like the bison industry. So, you know, kind of taking it and and we have the potential to really address some of those big questions because bison is everywhere all the time. And uh, and I, I really, it, I find it really fascinating and uh, really encouraging. Yeah, and I think um, you're right, Chris, and that's, you know, kind of been, been my interest is, you know, when I was working up in Yellowstone, I got to be friends with the wildlife management folks and stuff and and seeing that, you know, archaeological data was being utilized, but it was, you know, be either being cherry picked or not really understanding how, you know, the archaeological record comes to us. And, you know, so some pretty unsophisticated ways that the, the data was being utilized. And, you know, that's what I, you know, really would like to see us get involved with with wildlife managers and and finding ways you know i think one of the things we had this discussion at the, the last Rocky Mountain Anthropological Conference, and we invited um, Dan McNulty, who's a wildlife biologist and works up in Yellowstone, to be part of that discussion. And he's very much of the mind that, yeah, archaeology has a lot to contribute to to the discussion and the study of bison and wildlife management, and wildlands management. I, th- I think what becomes, uh, you know, kind of incumbent on us is is to show and to really illustrate that we do, uh, that the archaeological record has value. Because I don't think, and, and again, I think this is, you know, uh, you know, maybe a paradigm shift too, because they, I think wildlife biologists, not picking on you, Jeff. Um, I'm not a wildlife, I'm an inter- interdisciplinarian. <laughs> okay, great. Okay. All right. <laughs> Pick up some wildlife biologists. But I don't, you know, they're not they're not trained to to think in the time scales that we are. And you know, a decade or two decades worth of data is is really important to them, but they're not they're not seeing what what happened, you know, in 150 years of, you know, of colonization of, you know, decimation of bison herds, everything that went on, you know, over the course of the last 500 years never gets put into that equation. Uh, and I, and we've got the data to do that. We've got it in some places at very fine scales, you know, bison kill sites. I mean, they, you know, they're incredible 
resources for understanding that herd at that moment in time or multiple herds. But I think it becomes, you know, again, incumbent on us to show the wildlife community that, yes, the data sets that we have have that value. And it's not, you know, as, as Mark Boyce told me, it's like, you know, just trying to see, you know, how many angels are dancing on a pin. It doesn't it doesn't matter to them. And, you know, hopefully his his thinking about archaeological data has has evolved over the 15 years that I was part of that group that he talked about, but he he didn't see any value in the archaeological data at that point. He just thought it was a an intellectual exercise. So yeah, so that's that's where I'm coming from is you know how do how do we move forward on that and how do we demonstrate that archaeology and paleozoological data adds value to this discussion. And so I'm a just to recap what I am, I'm a hard rock geologist by for my bachelor's degree. And so deep earth history. And then my master's is in geosciences and vertebrate paleontology at East Tennessee State. And then I went to become a wildlife biologist. Um, so I integrate all of those temporal, spatial, multidisciplinary uh, tangents. And I think you and I can uh, have a shared connection with Glenn Plum. And it's because of you, Ken, that he now has an appreciation for paleontology and archaeology and zooarchaeology and all of these disciplines and integrating that into the information for wildlife biologists. But he then admittedly says that most wildlife biologists don't have time to go into that because they're in the courtroom. They're not in the field <laughs> managing bison or other wildlife. They're in the courtroom battling many of these uh, contests for laws. Um, and so that is actually what most of their time is spent on is law enforcement in, in the courtroom. So, yeah, we need to make our information immediately applicable for them in our discussions. <laughs> you know, and I under understand um you know, all those, all those limits. Um, and, you know, another thing that was, that was brought up by, by Dan too, is they don't have access to, you know, the archeological data like we do. And so, yeah, we, we need to start, you know, bridging those, those relationships with. Even with, uh, I mean, we have shared questions and I think that's a good start, but you're right. Even, even a shared vocabulary. Um, you know, when we talk about things that are happening using archaeological data, and we are aware of the limitations of those data, um, we really do need to translate that into concepts and into answers that can be easily digested. And I think we're doing better at that. Certainly, there can be more uh, more improvement, but, but I, there's certainly awareness with people who are doing bison that there, there's a bigger audience than just other archaeologists or other zooarchaeologists. Yeah, I think that's true. And um, it, it has improved. And, you know, I, I think like Jeff was saying, and when I was working in Yellowstone in the early, early 90s, and, you know, and then it was, you know, it was very different. And, you know, and, and there was really not a whole lot of interest from, from Yellowstone management and archaeology at the time. You know, the then superintendent, you know, at, at a meeting, he said, you know, the worst thing I can imagine is I come in here and you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a, an archaeologist in my park. And I was like, why is that a bad thing? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, but, you know, for a long time, and I, and I think in some ways, too, it's, you know, and we keep picking on Yellowstone, but Yellowstone still is being presented as this this wildlife, this natural park. And and the human element is still minimized there, even 
how many years archaeologists, you know, Doug McDonald and other archaeologists and, you know, Larry Todd's working in, in the region and publishing papers and showing that people have been on this landscape for 10,000 years. They've been intimately part of the landscape, and, and it, but, it, but it still seems to continue to be, to be minimized. And that, that may actually be another aspect of another paradigm shift that needs to happen. You know, we need to think about bison as wildlife, not domesticated animals. When you think about domesticated animals, people are, are, are a critical part of, of that definition. But uh, as wildlife, oftentimes you think about them in, you know, the public thinks about them in kind of this isolated way. And as a large mammal on the landscape, you know, that, that is not the case. People are critical parts of the, that ecosystem. They're, they're important predators. Uh, their their impact is outsized of their body size or their diet or that sort of thing. They create fires, they they plant crops, uh, they move around, and so there's all these things that that people do. And when when you remove when you move bison from the domesticated animal category to the wildlife category, a lot of times you remove the people part of it, and we can't do that. And I, I think a lot of us that are working on this, you know, we, we recognize that. And, and certainly the, uh, the, the, the conversation that is being, being had with tribal agencies and that sort of thing is amplifying that. But, uh, but in the public, there probably is kind of a perception that we need to push back against. I think, Larry, you're saying that those are two endpoints. And, and in reality, it's an They're entire spectrum. Yeah, yeah that if you make bison wildlife, you've disconnected them from humans is just really nasty thinking because, you know, when we have these archeological records of these mass kill sites where human predators have been taking big chunks out of the gene pool over and over and over and over and over again for millennia and millennia and millennia, uh, humans have had a genetic impact on bison, probably more so over the last 10,000 years than climate and rangelands and this and that and the other. So even though we make bison, we move them into the wildlife category, we've got to remember that there's that wildlife and human interaction that's a long-standing um, interconnection. And it's not like as wildlife, they become disconnected from humans, uh, that, they, that we need to recognize that they're the result of that long-term human interaction. Uh, and just like human culture, as Jason was saying, is richly enmeshed with stories of bison, bison genetics is richly enmeshed with human hunting practices and behaviors over the millennia. They're connected. So although it's important to start thinking of them as wildlife for management, just like it's important to think of, of wilderness areas for management of landscapes, we, with both of those, we need to keep remembering and keep reminding people that bison as wildlife doesn't mean they're disconnected from humans and wilderness as protected landscape doesn't mean it's been a landscape devoid of humans uh, we always need to keep bringing the humans the people that were living here back into the equation i have a, a perhaps hypothetical question perhaps not hypothetical um, would the role of connecting modern people back to bison um, or to bison if they've never experienced it in their ancestral lineage be facilitated by being able to consume bison and see bison um, in, in those two capacities facilitated through Ted's Montana Grill. We brought it up earlier. 
being able to consume it in big cities like Atlanta, where they never get to see bison and they don't want to hunt. The large majority of USA's population no longer hunt, no longer fish. Uh, there's a growing population for recreation, but to manage most wildlife populations like deer, elk, everything like this, they're still managed. Uh, there's a limit for harvest and take annually in their uh, respective hunting seasons. We don't have that for bison and people don't hunt. So would the private sector, tribal sectors be able to facilitate that connection through consumption to bison? I, I anticipate that they would, especially in tribal lands. Hunting buffalo here at Wind River is, is the goal. That's We have uh, successfully managed six of the seven ungulate species with the implementation of a game code in 84. Hunting is still a very important part of um, gathering our foods. It would be a problem here on the reservation, but if we start talking about public buffalo restoration efforts, I think that those could be highly competitive for hunts also. I think about just the pronghorn antelope in Wyoming and the, the competition for an antelope tag, and people come from all over the United States to hunt antelope here. Imagine if we, if we had buffalo that uh, people could compete for tags for. Could be an incredible amount of uh, economic uh, boost for the economy while managing buffalo as wildlife. Uh, so I, I, think, I think we can do it. The story of the bison is a story of adaptability, plasticity, and interaction with humans for more than 10,000 years. Just as human predators have shaped their story, they have shaped ours. Today, the reintroduction of bison to tribal lands opens a new chapter and a new discussion. Bison are the United States national mammal. This makes every American a steward of the bison. Fulfilling this role requires a critical look back at the events of the late 19th century and beyond, as well as a understanding of bison and their relationship to their environment. This also requires critical examination of our relationship to the natural world. There's so much to be learned from these amazing animals, and it's an exciting prospect. Thank you for listening to this season of the Matizzi Stories. We hope you were as excited about bison and the Matizzi Museum's Bison of the Bighorn Basin project as we are. For more information on the topics mentioned in this episode, our bison experts, and more, check out our show notes. Remember to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen as it helps people find the podcast and it helps us do better next time. Thanks.